0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Uh, this morning I want to continue on in the series on the book of Psalms, and we're going to park in Psalms just a, a little bit longer uh, before moving on to a new series. And this morning I want to look at Psalm 116, and the title of the message is What Can I Offer? the Lord. Uh, I remember that it was a lot easier to buy gifts for my parents when I was a little kid. You know, every once in a while my elementary school would have these pop-up stores where for a few cents you could buy some cheap gifts for your parents or your siblings or even your friends. And I remember for like 50 cents I would buy a plastic number one dad trophy or a piece of plastic um, cheap costume jewelry for my mom. And I would look so forward to presenting those gifts to my parents. And when they received them, you would swear that I had just given them a yacht or a fancy car or something. They they just delighted in these cheap, valueless, simple gifts. But the truth is, as I've gotten older, it's gotten harder and harder to give gifts or even for my parents to appreciate gifts that they get from me. And part of the reason it's harder um, to give gifts to my, my parents now, is that as an adult myself, I have greater awareness of just how great a debt I owe to them, how unrepayable a debt stands between me and them, because they've done so much for me that I'm very aware nothing I do could possibly express adequately um, thanks for what they've done. And, and the other part of it is, their net worth is at least a hundred times what mine is. And so even if I made a grand gesture and did a huge splurge, there is not a single gift I could buy for them that they couldn't buy more easily for themselves. And there is no magnitude of gift, no, no cost or expense that could move them in and of itself. They're just wealthier than I am. And so what do you get someone who could buy everything they already need or want for themselves? I think the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116 could really relate to the tension I feel. And that that tension is especially heightened now in May through June because in the span of two months I have Mother's Day and Father's Day and I have my dad's birthday. And on all three occasions I just have no clue what I could possibly give my folks. We don't know who exactly wrote Psalm 116, but we know a couple things about this person for sure. And one was that he was in serious trouble. If you look at verse 3... Look at the descriptive language the psalmist uses. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Have you ever been in trouble like that? Where it felt like ropes were entangling you and pulling at you, binding you? You felt like you were being dragged under and just drowning in your troubles. I think most of us have experienced some kind of trouble in our lives that felt like that, left us feeling totally helpless. And it says in verse 8 that he cried out to God in the midst of this distress when death seemed absolutely certain. And he says this, he has saved me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. He cries out to God in this distress when Death and destruction seem absolutely certain, and God saves him. And he's so moved by this experience. And if you've ever had that experience where you, you're sure it was the end for you, this is over, nothing is going to be okay after, and then somehow by a miracle, God delivers you. You live to fight another day, and things start to get better. And it's such a moving experience to come so close to destruction and then escape. Be delivered from it. And the psalmist, in his relief and his thanksgiving, wants to do something to offer to God an expression of what he feels inside. Now, if you've ever been delivered from that kind of trouble, you know exactly what the psalmist is feeling. He's overflowing with emotion, but he's not really sure what he could possibly do that could be adequate. And so he asks in verse 12 the question that I'm going to frame the entire message around this morning. And it's this simple question, but so profound. What can I offer the Lord for all that He has done for me? I mean, what do you give to a God who has done more for you than you could possibly ever repay? What do you offer to a God who made everything, owns everything? How can you possibly give Him an offering that could adequately express what you feel or what he's worth? I think the answer might be found in the fact that my parents delighted more in a 50-cent trinket than they would today in a $500 gift. Something about that childhood gift reveals to us the kind of offering we can give God, our Heavenly Father. So in this psalm, I see several gifts that the psalmist is able to offer. And I want to share those with you this morning because I think we will all find ourselves not just in that kind of trouble but also on the other side that God has actually delivered us from our troubles. And we're going to feel what the psalmist felt. We're going to want to do something, say something, give something that expresses to God what is bubbling up inside of us. And here are some great suggestions for the kind of things we can offer to God when we're in that place. And the first is we can offer Him the gift of prayer. Now before you... Groan over that and feel like, oh, of course it's going to be prayer. Such a we hear the word prayer and we think duty. We think hours spent on our knees just trying to come up with something to say. But I love the way that in verse one the psalmist just opens up with this exuberant declaration of love for God. He says, "I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my prayer for mercy." You know, as a dad, I truly appreciate it when my kids tell me that they love me. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, and if I'm being honest, mostly they have the word to at the end of it. They say, I love you too, which reveals that usually I'm the one who says it first, and then they're responding. But once in a while, they do say, I love you, dad, and they volunteer that unprompted. And when they do say that, it touches my heart really deeply. I don't think there's a mom or dad alive, whose heart doesn't just flutter when their kid says with an honest heart, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Just like with earthly parents and earthly children, we don't just love because it's bubbling up in us. So often the love we feel is a response to love that we've received. And When you look at verses 1 and 2, the psalmist reveals that the reason he loves God so excitedly, so genuinely is that God truly listens to him when he talks. And that's what prayer is. It's us. We're talking to God, and he's talking back to us. And when we have a conversation with God, he actually listens to us. Now, parents, I want to take a a sidebar here and just say, if we talk at our kids more than we actually listen to our kids, it's going to be really hard for us to ever get much closer to our children over time. That doesn't mean we have nothing valid to say or that they shouldn't listen to us either. But if you spend more time talking at your kids than really listening to them, the relationship is going to be hindered. Now again, that doesn't mean that our kids won't say some things that are just really self-absorbed or immature, but let's be honest, we say a lot of self-absorbed, immature things to God as well as adults. you know. And so we take a lesson from the psalmist here. He says, I love God because when I talk to God, He actually hears what I'm saying. In fact, he says he's such a good father, he bends down. He bends down. When you have a a father and a very young child, that's the only way they're going to come eye to eye is if the father lowers himself. And he bends down on his knees and says, What is it you're saying, honey? What is it you're saying? And our Heavenly Father bends down to listen when we pray. He's not too busy or self-absorbed to give us his full and undivided attention. And because God is like this as a father, the psalmist is then enthusiastic about prayer. I don't think we're ever really going to love praying to God until we see what kind of father he really is. When you realize that this heavenly father doesn't have his arms crossed, isn't daring you to say eloquent words that will get his attention, but when you realize he is the kind of father who when you begin talking to him, he will pause and he will hear you. When you realize he's like that, then you'll be able to say things like what the psalmist says. He says, I will pray as long as I have breath. When's the last time you felt that about prayer, about your prayer life? But the truth is, when we realize what kind of father we have in heaven, then it unlocks something in us that wants to talk to him more. I truly believe, even this is true even of teenagers, every child longs for a relationship with their mother or father. But when there is conflict when there is something blocking that relationship it's painful for both sides if you've ever parented teenagers you know that sometimes it feels like they really don't want anything to do with you i don't think that's true even when i was a teenager i did want a relationship with my parents but you really don't develop that relationship till you see truly what the other person's heart is like for you now incidentally notice that it says he hears my voice it doesn't say he reads my mind Here's why I think that's important. It's okay to pray silently, right? I mean, and most of us do. When we pray, we don't really say anything out loud. Most of the time, we're praying by ourselves. I know that to be true because our prayer meetings are not exactly well attended. So most of us, if we're praying at all, we're praying alone. And when we pray alone, we pray in quiet, in our own minds. Now, that's totally okay. And there are times when that's the right way, the best way for us to pray. But it does make a difference when we pray out loud. Now, Hear me correctly. It doesn't make a difference in God's ability to hear us whether we pray out loud or we pray in silence. God can hear our words and our hearts either way, but praying out loud actually affects our experience on our side of that conversation. If I just sat with my wife and looked at her and I made the most expressive faces, And just, I'm trying to convey through my eyes, my body language, just what I feel for her. She'll probably pick up quite a bit from that nonverbal communication. But something happens when I'm forced to speak the words aloud. I have to think about what I'm really saying. And the words once spoken are out there in the universe. They're real. They can't be unsaid or pulled back. And it starts to feel more like a true conversation. And I think that's the way our prayer life is affected when even while we're alone, we pray aloud and actually speak words to God. I found that it actually makes makes it feel more that God is really in the room with me when I speak to him aloud in prayer. Now, as a father, I have truly enjoyed all four of my children. I didn't think it would be possible to love four different kids equally, and the the truth is when I was younger, I was like, no way, you're going to have a favorite, you're going to but the truth is there's, there, I was so surprised to discover there's enough love in me that I truly love all four kids. And whenever I get a chance to spend one-on-one time with any of my kids, I, I just really enjoy it. Now, a lot of the times, it's me who has to initiate that, that time spent together, that connection or conversation, but they're usually pretty good-natured about it. When I invite them to have some time with me, they agree, and we have a great time. But about a year ago, my son Noah... Really did something that touched my heart. It really blessed me. He said, Dad, can I make an appointment with you so that I could actually have an intentional conversation with you? And I want to get some advice from you on something. And he, you know, we we talk a lot, but it was such a gift to me that he initiated a conversation and a connection with me. I've had so much advice to offer unsolicited to him, but the fact that he asked me just for a conversation, he wanted to have contact with me, that was such a great gift. And I believe that that's the way that our prayer life touches the heart of God. He knows what we need and what we want before we ever utter a word. And if prayer life is so transactional, if it's just about telling God the stuff we want or need, I think that cheapens the value of the relationship between us. And it's really helpful to think in terms of a father and a child. Our prayer life touches the heart of God in the same way that when a child says, Daddy, can we just spend some time together? I have things I want to say to you, and I want to ask you to say some things to me that will help me. And when a child initiates that, I I can't describe to you the way it affects a father's heart, and I'm just an earthly, imperfect father. I want you to know that when we approach God to pray that way for a real connection, a real conversation, it's a gift we can actually offer to our Heavenly Father that touches His heart and honors Him. There's another gift we can offer to God that touches His heart, and and that's the gift of faith. Now, I'm giving you all these really generic, churchy-sounding words, but let me unpack what I mean by that a little bit. If you've been watching... um, the Last Dance on ESPN. And if you're not, uh, I don't know what to say to you. I mean, educate yourself. Y- you've got to watch this. If you grew up during the era of, of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen Bulls, um, it's really just a wonderful jump back into memory lane. And in Episode 7, I believe, they were talking about how in Game 3 of the 1994 Eastern Conference Semifinals, where the Bulls were facing the Knicks, in Game 3, they were tied at 102 with 1.8 seconds left in the game. Now that's the kind of moment that sports fans and athletes all live for and dread at the same time. And Phil Jackson drew up a play where Tony Kukoc would take the decisive game-winning shot. Now, you got to understand that this was during a time when Michael Jordan had stepped away from the game. And Scotty Pippen had stepped up and provided some really strong leadership and was playing very well. And after Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen really was the leading player on the team. So um, he was really, really bothered by Phil Jackson's decision to let Tony Kukoc take the decisive game-winning shot. And in protest, feeling disrespected, Scotty decided to sit out and not return to the game a lot of fans and, and teammates were really disappointed with Scotty's decision they said he was childish and selfish and they'd really let the team down and maybe all of that is true I, I think it is but I do empathize with Scotty because it really hurts to not be trusted when you've worked so hard to earn that trust in the end Tony Kukoc made the shot they won the game 104 to 102, but beyond the victory, beyond the game itself, I learned something from that situation, that when someone has worked hard to earn trust, it's a real gift to them to give them that trust. And when it's not given, it's painful. And by the way, do you know that trust means more when there's a lot on the line? There are some basketball players who will only touch the ball if their team is either up by 50 points or down by 50 points. You know, I'm talking about that, that Rudy moment where you're like, what can we possibly lose here? Let's put the kid in. And when that happens, when you're the kind of athlete who only touches the ball when there's nothing to lose or nothing to really gain, that's not an act of trust. It's an act of kindness. They're just saying, here, have a moment in the spotlight. But when it's 102, 102, and 1.8 seconds left in the game, when everything is on the line and they give you the ball, that's a tremendous honor. It's an act of trust. On the part of everyone around you. The psalmist honored God by crying out to him, trusting him, when everything was on the line. If you look at verses three and four, you see this vivid imagery of how close to death he really was, how it felt like the life was being choked out of him and he was being pulled under and into the grave. And he says, In that context, in the midst of the greatest trouble, I called. On the name of the Lord, and listen to this prayer. Please, Lord, save me. I don't think our prayers need to be flowery for God to pay attention. In fact, I I suspect that the prayers that move God's heart the most are the direct, simple, childlike prayers of desperation and dependence. Whenever I think about this, I, I think of that video I saw on YouTube of a little girl who was trying wasabi for the first time and. Her mom puts a little bit on her tongue, she asks for it, and then after a minute she just says, help. And I don't know why that's so cute to me, but seeing her, her frightened eyes and her distress and all she says is help, it just awakens anything in any parent, like just this protective instinct to come down and rescue. I don't think we need flowery language for God to hear our cries for help I believe that what he wants most is just an honest expression, a simple expression of desperate dependence on him. And when everything is on the line, who we turn to or what we turn to to feel better, to find hope, that is the thing that we trust. That is the thing that we honor. So in his desperation, he cries out this simple, beautiful prayer, Please, Lord, save me. Now, verse 10, and especially in the NIV, I think it captures this well, reveals for us that the psalmist doesn't just pray this out of desperation, but it re- reveals that he prays this because he has a deep trust in God in spite of his ongoing affliction. He says, I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. You know, sometimes when our suffering continues, even while we're praying, We're very quick to say, you know, maybe prayer is useless, maybe God's not paying attention, and I'm going to stop. I think trust doesn't really have a shelf life, does it? Um, What it says is, because my affliction hasn't ended and I have no other hope, I'm going to put my full trust in the only one who actually can do anything for me. He doesn't have to respond to me on my timetable, but in the end, when I have no other recourse, I will trust God because who else do I have? He is the only one who can actually save me. Here's what faith or trust looks like. Imagine that you're stuck in a sketchy part of town and the last train out leaves at 11 p.m. and I told you, don't worry about it. I will be there to pick you up at like 11, maybe 11.05, but I will be there to get you. And let's say I arrive at 11.01 to get you in that one minute before the last train leaves and you're stranded there by yourself, that decision you make is what trust looks like. Because in the end, that train right there at the station is a certain tangible thing. If you get on, you will get out of that dodgy part of town. But if you let that train leave, all you have left is my word, my promise that I will be there to come get you. See, trust is most visible When it's all we have left. And I believe that's the kind of trust that is such a gift to God. When we offer Him our faith, we're not just saying, well, let's see what happens. We're saying, I believe in you. You've told me that you'd come to deliver me. And even if you don't deliver me from this, I believe you will deliver me in the end, even after this earthly life is finished. I won't abandon you because my affliction continues. I will trust you and stake everything on your word that you have earned my trust. I love what the psalmist says in verse 7. He says this this trust, this faith that we place in God isn't just a blind faith. It's not a rolling of the dice. In verse 7, he says, Let my soul be at rest again, for the Lord has been good to me. I think that is one of the most important verses in the whole psalm. What he's revealing is that when we place our trust in God, and we'll have to do this as a choice again and again and again, it's because God in the past has shown himself worthy of that trust. I've often thought about that movie, Fifty First First Dates, with, uh, with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, where it's exhausting to be in a relationship where every single day you've got to start from scratch again where everything you've done, good or bad, is completely forgotten, and you're a stranger to that person all over again with the start of every new day. I've got to suspect that God sometimes feels that way with us. It, doesn't seem, it seems like no matter how often He delivers us, rescues us, takes care of us, even all the days that we continue to breathe and eat and have a warm place to shelter, He so rarely gets credit for all of that. We're much faster to seize on the times when it feels like He's far away or He's let us down than all the times that He's earned our trust. And so when you have especially an overflow in your heart of thanksgiving and relief and you want to give a gift to God, one of the greatest gifts you can offer to your Heavenly Father is the gift of ongoing confidence and trust in Him because He has yet once again earned the trust That you place in Him. Let me end with this last point. There's a third and final gift that I believe I can find in the psalm um, that we can offer to God when we want to express something to Him, and that is the gift of our testimony. You know, when children are young, they think so highly of their parents. Little boys have arguments that sound like this Yeah, well, my dad could beat up your dad. My dad could eat a dozen donuts. Oh yeah, well, my dad could eat a dozen dozen donuts. And I think some dads probably could. But what I love about those childhood arguments is how blindly, how absolutely little kids believe their parents are the greatest beings on the earth. And one of the heartaches of being a mom or dad is that as your kids grow up, you watch yourself shrink in their eyes on an almost daily basis that the kid who once thought you were the strongest human being on earth, the biggest, the tallest, the smartest, the safest, begins to look at you differently. I believe it honors the heart of God when we continue to boast in Him as our Heavenly Father. I know, I have no illusions about myself. I know I'm not the world's smartest man or fastest man or strongest man or any of it. But when my children expressed that confidence in me, I felt so touched in my heart by that vote of confidence, by their absolute conviction that my dad can do anything. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do, right? And we sing that song in children's ministry, and my kids once looked at me like that. At least I think they did, unless they were born liars. But I really believe they saw me that way once. And I know that that's not exactly the way they see me today. That's the natural course of things. But unlike me, our Heavenly Father doesn't diminish over time. He doesn't shrink or grow weaker. He doesn't reveal that He is, in fact, not that faithful, not that strong. He remains the same always. And right after the psalmist asks that important question in verse 12, what can I possibly offer the Lord? This is the biblical version of the question, what do you give the man who has everything? How can I possibly give a gift to God that could honor him adequately? And he asks the question, and then in the next five verses, verses 13 to 18, he says he's going to do several things. And if you look at verses 13 to 18, he says in verse 13, I will praise the Lord's name. In verse 17, I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And again in verse 17, I will call on the name of the Lord. Now, most of us will do those things. We'll we'll make a sacrifice. We'll make a pledge in our hearts or something. Um, Very often we will say, thank you, God. I acknowledge you, God. But we very often do it in private. What's important to see in those verses is that twice he says I will do these things in the presence of all his people. In other words, this is not a private testimony. He's not just telling himself or telling God, but he's telling anyone who will listen. He is telling his church, his community, his congregation, this is what God is like and this is what God has done for me. You know, many people are understandably hesitant when they're invited to give a public testimony. In our day and age, mostly we give testimony by video. But even when someone is asked to take the microphone at church and just say, hey, that's an amazing story, would you share that in front of the church? I mean, if I were to ask you that right now, and just be honest, what would your first response be? For most people, and I know this from experience, they're like, hmm, wow, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. And I, I get it. For a lot of people, it's shyness. It's fear of public speaking. You know, uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld the one who said statistically people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. So I get that most people are not comfortable standing in front of others. But for a lot of people, really what's at the heart of that hesitation is that they don't like to say things that draw attention to themselves. It feels like self-promotion in a way. Or almost boasting to say, hey, church, listen to what happened to me as if anyone cares what happened to me. And I I think that's a a healthy form of humility to recognize that you are not the center of the universe. But I want you to know something. Public testimony is not self-promotion. It's God promotion. It's not drawing attention to yourself. Even though your your life is the canvas on which God is painting something, you're not the real story here. God is. And here's why that is so important that we do this in the presence of all of God's people, is that we're boasting about what God has done, not about what we have done. And it matters because whenever we give a public testimony about something God has done or something God has revealed himself to be to us, in that audience, in that congregation, there's bound to be someone who is just entering the dark tunnel of suffering you've emerged from. Others are right in the middle of that that tunnel of suffering and the darkness and the weight of it is so oppressive they could barely hear what you're saying. And as you stand up and deliver that public testimony, what you say about God and His deliverance could make the difference between that person giving up and that person hanging on to hope in God. Our testimony matters because as people hear it, what God has done for us offers hope for what he will do for them. Now let me end with this. In verse 5, the psalmist gives us one last element of this that is so important. He says, how kind the Lord is, how good he is, so merciful, this God of ours. Did you notice that in verse 5, his testimony is not about what God has done, but what God is like. And I think that's so important because sometimes when our whole testimony is just about what happened in our lives, how God changed our situation, it can be a little discouraging because God won't always work the same way in everyone's life. He won't always repeat in my life what he did in your life. But the heart of God, the character of God is unchanging over time. So so sometimes the most important testimony we can give is not what God did for me, but through all this trial, here's what I saw in the heart of God for me, that He is so kind, He is so good, He is so merciful. And that is one of the great gifts of emerging out of suffering, is not just that we're no longer in trouble or in danger, but that through that journey, we came to see what kind of Father we have in heaven, how He feels about us what He feels for us. It's natural when God is kind to us to want to do something or give something that expresses how we feel for Him. And and I really believe that we, uh, when we feel that way, can learn a lesson from the way any child honors or gives gifts to their earthly mother or father. The same gifts that honor Earthly fathers honor our Heavenly Father. You know, we can give the gift of prayer, which is, it's such a gift when a child approaches a father and says, I want to spend time with you. I want to have a conversation with you. And it's one thing to respond, but what a gift when we approach God to say, can we talk? I have things to say, and I want to hear what you have to say. We can give the gift of trust to say, God, you have done so much to earn my confidence in you. I want to just place my full trust in you, especially now when everything is on the line. And we can also give God the gift of our testimony. Like a young child so confident in his father to say, I'm going to boast of my daddy in heaven. I'm going to let the world know that the, the father I have in heaven is the greatest father anyone can have. And I want to boast publicly because I want everyone to know that no matter how dark it seems, you also can have the same Heavenly Father. And He is so good. He is so merciful. He is so kind to us. In a minute, the praise team is going to lead us in a final song. And you know I really believe the first step of expressing uh, gratitude is to acknowledge that God actually has been good to us. I don't believe we can properly thank God unless we really acknowledge how good He has been to us. And so as we get ready to sing this last song, I want to encourage you to think about the many ways God has been so good, so merciful, so kind to you over the years. And from that place, invite Him to say, God, how can I express something to you to acknowledge who you've been to me? After that last song, I'll be back to give you a final word of blessing and then then invite you into some time of reflection and discussion. May God give you a clear memory of all the ways He has been kind to you. If you're in trouble, may God be the one in whom you place your trust and may He deliver you from that dark place. No matter how long it takes, don't give up and don't give up on God. He will justify the trust you place in Him. And as He has delivered us again and again, May He give you a heart that overflows with the desire to offer Him something, express something that honors Him and touches His heart. This week, as you live out your life, I encourage you to find time to offer God the gift of prayer and the gift of your trust. And the next time you're invited to share the story of what God has been for you, what He's done for you, I pray that you will remember this message And remember that it is so honoring to our Heavenly Father when we boast before the world of what He's like and what He's done. May God bless you richly this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to flash up a slide in just a minute, and I'll have a couple questions that you can use to Just have personal reflection if that's where you are, or if you want to gather those you're with and just have a short discussion about this, uh, we invite you to do that. It's been really good to worship with you. Uh, We really don't know how much longer this situation will last, but uh, rather than just riding it out and enduring it, let's lean into it and make the most of this situation. You know, we're never going to get a situation like this again, so rather than just hoping it ends, Let's make the most of this weird time we're in. And I pray that God will be with you where you are and show His faithfulness to you this week. Love you, Harvest. Till next week, God bless you. Have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.